Good morning, everyone. You can see why we chose to make this a breakfast briefing, so no one was tempted to uh, have a drink in their hand. I'm Julia Hobsbawm from Editorial Intelligence. I'm really pleased we're doing this event. This is the first one we're doing in association with the government department, with the Department of Health, whose uh, Know Your Limits campaign you're probably aware of, and with the Portman Group. We were match made, I'm pleased to say, by Fishburne Hedges, who uh, thought it would be a good idea to put on this particular topic. Those of you that know our Insight Club, under whose auspices this event is taking place, know that what we like to do is cover an issue of great topicality and bring together both on the panel and in the room people who have a particular interest in discussing it from a policy perspective, a media perspective, possibly even although Ed Mitchell will explain a practitioner perspective. And uh, without further ado, I'm going to hand over to our chair. And I will say this event is not just um, live in front of you, it's being podcast for posterity. We, apparently we have over 2,000 downloads a month from iTunes, so you can make it 2,099. Um, so please make sure that you're aware that you are on the record. Ian Collins and I first met doing late-night newspaper reviews for the BBC and Sky. He is a bit of a late-night veteran of talk sport. Before he found his voice as really one of the most interesting and provocative talk show uh, hosts, he covers the non-sport content uh, on his late-night programme. His extensive CV tells me that a long time ago he auditioned to be a monster in Doctor Who, but he's very unmonstrous, and I'm going to hand over to him to introduce the panel and the event. Thank you. Thank you, Julia. Um, well, the purpose, as, uh, as I'm sure you know of this morning, is to really debate the extent to which the portrayal of alcohol uh, in the media uh, influences uh, the culture of drinking uh, in this country. There's, of course, a, a polarised debate as to whether there's a responsibility on behalf of uh, broadcasters in radio in particular. Uh, a recent survey of 1,200 hours of weekend radio uh, suggested that the influence of presenters, and particularly male presenters uh, within radio, was uh, having a detrimental effect on, on the country in terms of uh, the influence of... 73% uh, of the comments initiated by presenters about alcohol apparently encouraged drinking. 13%, uh, according to the report, encouraged excess drinking. Uh, the counter to all of that, of course, is that this is all a bit nanny state. If you kind of take the top gear, uh, James May, Oz Clark sort of school of thought, um, it's very different in that they will argue that it's a free society. If adults can't drink, uh, the real problem are uh, people who go out late at night uh, wrecking the place, kicking, uh, kicking policemen was, uh, I think, uh, James May's um, comment on that. But this is, of course, further countered. Uh, by the other side, which comes um, a report from, uh, in fact, a piece on David McCartney's uh, blog, who's an addiction doctor, who says, in fact, to suggest that this is just about youths on the street is entirely missing the point. He says this is patronising rubbish. In terms of numbers, the drinkers at most risk are not the ones beating up policemen. They are the ones sitting at home drinking a bottle of wine each night because everybody else is doing it and it's not doing any harm. And that maybe will be some of the focus of the debate. This isn't really about 15-year-olds binge drinking. This is the wider issue of the influence of the media on the middle classes, the professional classes. Uh, let's introduce our panel. Uh, we have with us uh, five of, uh, of the very best to comment on these issues. Uh, Professor Oliver James on my uh, right here, 
uh, qualified as a doctor in 1967 from Oxford. Uh, his main clinical and research interests are liver disease and also some aspects of ageing. He became a professor of medicine in 1985, head of the University Department of Medicine in Newcastle in 1994, and pro-vice-chancellor of Newcastle's factual Faculty of Biomedical Science in 2004. He retired from the post in 2008, but now continues research on liver disease and ageing as well. He's a keen collector of wine of 30 years and boasts a, a large collection, I understand. Fair. And uh, told me just before this uh, started, I hope you won't mind me saying this, but he checked into a hotel last night and was delighted to be given a free bottle of champagne uh, for, for no apparent reason. Uh, but he was delighted with that. In the media terms, his uncle was the editor of the Evening Standard, one cousin an editor of American Vogue, and another political editor of The Guardian. Uh, Zoe Williams, on that point of The Guardian, started life uh, the Standard, pre-Russian Standard, of course that is, and uh, a column called The Slut's Guide. Is that right, Zoe? Yeah. <laughs> in a million years you couldn't she moved to the Guardian in 2000 where she's been ever since uh, as a columnist and of course feature writer she also writes a restaurant column for the Sunday Telegraph uh, over on my left over here is Jackie Thornton a medical journalist with 18 years experience working as health editor of The Sun between 2000 and 2007 and health correspondent of the Sunday Telegraph uh, between 1998 and 2000 in 2007 she set up her own media company providing consultancy and media training Jackie still freelances for national newspapers and magazines, including The Times, The Observer, Cosmopolitan, Cosmopolitan, on health issues. She was shortlisted recently for the Freelance Health Journalist of the Year Award 2008 by Medical Journalists Association. Uh, she's a member of the Department of Health's Organ Donation Task Force and an associate non-executive director of the Winchester and Eastleigh Healthcare NHS Trust. Is that all about right? Fantastic. Uh, Hugh Burkett is the chief executive of the Marketing Society, Marketing Society, the man who sits here on my left. Uh, as a marketer, he was closely involved with the advertising of a wide range of alcoholic drinks. Uh, they include the launch of Pierre d'Or, Malibu, Archers, Coors, and the relaunch of Bailey's and Southern Comfort. Good man. As a regulator, he has served on the Council of Advertising Standards at the Advertising Standards Authority and the Independent Complaints Panel of the Portman Group. As chief exec of the Marketing Society, Hugh has been responsible for the launch of the Society's Manifesto for Marketing, the Marketing Fast Track Professional Development Scheme, and the Marketing Leaders Programme for Aspiring Marketing Directors. He began his own career as a Unilever trainee at Birdseye Foods and progressed via the Manchester Business School to Colette Dickinson Pierce. Uh, he spent the next 30 years in advertising, founding the agency Burkitt Wine Reich, is that right? Uh, Bryant in 1986 and leaving in 2002 as chairman of Burkitt DDB. Uh, Ed Mitchell, sitting on the end here, is, uh, was one of Europe's leading business broadcasters for many years, interviewing many hundreds of top financial political figures. He worked with some of the world's most respected news organizations, including Reuters, the BBC, ITN, Channel 4, Europe Business, the Europe Business Channel, Asia Business News, European Business News, CNBC, uh, regular on News at 10, budget programs, lunchtime, breakfast TV, as well as being a well-known face in city dealing rooms as well. His career then took a slightly rockier course, as many of you may be aware, redundancy, dozens of short-term Jobs, mounting debt problems, alcoholism, divorce, bankruptcy led to homelessness and then sleeping rough on Hove Seafront. A quirk of fate, however, got him into rehab 
and onto the path to recovery. His book, From Headlines to Hard Times, has just been published and was accompanied on Monday, I think, wasn't it, on the uh, the ITV documentary? Yeah. On Monday. Um, Ed's book, you might be interested to know, is actually available here for sale today at the end of this. So will you please welcome our panel here this morning. Let's, um, let's take this back to the original uh, question, the original premise we started out here about the portrayal of alcohol in the media and the influence of that. Let's start, if we can, with Professor Oliver James. We're going to give all of our panellists sort of three or four minutes to say their piece, and then we'll throw over to the floor to take some questions. So, Oliver. Thank you very much. And um, I, as you kindly said, I'm a physician, and I can confidently state that there's no organ in the body that can't be harmed by the bad effects, either long-term or acute, of alcohol. I thought there might be one, but uh, we discussed it, and even that single organ, one can now say, can be harmed. Just go through your body and work it out for yourselves. I'm a liver specialist, and I want to say that um, alcohol is quite different from tobacco. It's very different because I don't know a single chest chest specialist who smokes, and I don't know a single liver specialist who doesn't drink. (laughs) At present, I think there are a number of sort of contrary sets of of attitudes and interests in respect of of, um, alcohol, which are really intertwining rather like spaghetti. And I just very briefly want to set my stall out in respect of one or two of these in relation to today's subject. So at the moment, for example, there are completely contrary government-led policies where we have deregulation of licensing on the one hand, uh, which has led to uh, and been accompanied by alcohol in real terms being cheaper now than for 30 or more years to buy, while um, at the same time government sees binge drinking as a serious social and medical problem which must be tackled. There's, an e- there's equal disingenuousness, I feel, both by the drinks industry in terms of the way it deals with alcoholic products, but also with what one might call the anti-alcohol industry stroke lobby. So, for example, uh, supermarkets hide behind regulations over comp- unfair competition to uh, say that it would be impossible for them not to sell beer cheaper than mineral water. Uh, Pubs, you hear the uh, chief executive of the uh, British Beer and Pub Association uh, saying that uh, now it's a question of unemployment that must keep the price of beer in pubs low. And um, advertisers, Parche, some of my colleagues here on the panel, claim that um, adverts are not directed at young people for alcohol at under 18-year-olds when there's an absolute mountain of of decent evidence to suggest that that's patently not the case. But on the other hand, and I do think this is important, the World Health Organization, for example, which is now moving from or adding alcohol to its list of two or three deadly sins along with smoking, is, I think, very disingenuous in the way that it presents the evidence about health harms in particular in relation to alcohol. So it's supported recently um, at least two large publications um, 
allegedly pre um, providing um, fair evidence about the effects of alcohol on health, but really <laughs> barely mentioning um, the now very well-established um, beneficial effects of moderate alcohol consumption, two or three drinks a day, in very substantially reducing the likelihood of um, developing diabetes in middle age and older life, as well as the much more well-established um, connections between um, increased longevity with moderate drinking, decreased risk of, of um, occlusive stroke, and decreased risk of, um, of heart attack and vascular disease. These are now very well established indeed, and, and I don't think they've been um, sufficiently acknowledged by the uh, very violent um, sort of an anti-alcohol uh, lobby which, which exists. So, um, allied to this is this very difficult, I believe, key area of um, safe and sensible limits. So, I, I think that this is such a complicated message, but essentially what's safe and sensible for an under 20-year-old or a pregnant mum or a person who's about to get into a car and drive home is very different from what's safe and sensible for any of us in this room. I'm assuming everybody in this room's over the age of 30. I apologise if I'm wrong. Sitting at home um, on Friday or Saturday night sharing a bottle of wine with somebody or even sharing two bottles of wine with two other people. And I don't know what the answer to this is and probably there are people in the room who can. So I'm mostly concerned about young people and I think the quote that you gave from the psychiatrist saying, you know, that the real problem is in middle-aged people sitting at home having a bottle of wine is crap. Um, I, I think the real problem is... Um, in, in um, young people starting to drink, starting to drink very heavily and getting into the culture of, of heavy drinking. And so we've got this, this has been encouraged by the 24-hour city, which we're all very well aware of in the towns and cities all over Britain. This was invented by, by Tony Blair, I imagine sitting in a in one of the piazzas in um, Siena or Toulouse or something like that years ago. And the sort of irony was that by the time the, the legislation came along for um, um, allowing the deregulation of drinking and so on, it was already quite clear that this was going to be a disaster. So it was seven or eight years after Blair's big idea, um, uh, you, you, you know, sitting in San Gimignano before it actually came to pass and by that time we knew already that it was the wrong thing to do. So um, I've recently been in quite in a public spat over the attitude of, of uh, universities to Freshers' Week. Um, you may not be aware since Freshers' Week probably wasn't, was a while ago for some people in the room. But remembering that over 40% of 18-year-olds uh, are now going to university um, e each year. And e in every university, there's a freshers' week. In fact, it's usually a freshers' fortnight. And of course, it's not just freshers who take part in it. And, and um, this is really encouraging very, very heavy binge drinking over a long period of time, um, over a fortnight or so, for very, um, you know, very uh, young minds and so on. So, um, on, on the other hand, alcohol is um, the causally related uh, to more deaths in under 30-year-olds in several northern European countries than any other single cause. 
So there's no through suicide, violence, and so on. So there's absolutely no doubt that you, you know, this is a very, very major problem, but particularly in, in young people. And finally, at last, a number of reasonably well-conducted studies into the media in particular and its effects on alcohol are being carried out. So there's a really fun um, recent study just about to appear actually next month from a person at the University of Hartford who's um, shown adverts to um, alcohol adverts and other sort of control adverts um, to eight and nine-year-olds in primary schools and shown that really well um, uh, that the eight and nine-year-olds, girls as well as boys, really enjoy those adverts. Um, I don't blame them for, for example, Boddington's, one of my all-time favourite adverts, and uh, Bacardi Breezer. And they much prefer these and are interested by them and think they associate them with words like fun uh, compared to adverts for Ferrero Rocher or, or um, Baxter's food products, for example. In New Zealand, young men who um, remember seeing adverts and enjoying adverts for alcoholic drinks aged 15 drink more aged 18 than those who don't remember those adverts. And furthermore, when they get to 21 and 26, this cohort, those are the ones that are becoming regular heavy drinkers. And in Vermont, quite interestingly, uh, those children who saw alcohol portrayed in popular films when they were young were more likely to start drinking, uh, trying to drink in the next year or so than, uh, than those who don't remember seeing alcohol portrayed in, in, uh, in popular films. So, um, uh, in a, finally, a, in a recent meta-analysis, overall analysis of 64 such studies from the University of, of Sheffield, they conclude that there's a small but consistent effect associating adverts with consumption at an individual level. More adverts, more drinking. Point of purchase promotions do affect particularly underage drinkers and binge drinkers. That's what they conclude from looking at the research studies that have looked at this. And adverts in magazines and newspapers do increase particularly the number of young people who start drinking, their overall consumption, and the amount that they drink on each occasion. So don't kid yourselves. I think really reasonable research is now being carried out to this effect. Thank okay. you. Oliver James, thank you. Zoe Williams. Wow. <laughs> okay. Um, to discuss the media kind of in a... It's, it's a very hard thing to discuss because are you talking about films? Are you talking about telly? Are you talking about adverts? Are you talking about newspapers? All of, the, all of the agendas of these are really different and within each medium there's an awful lot of variety. So if you were to say, for instance, does television legitimise, stroke normalise, stroke kind of encourage drinking, you would the spectrum would go from Sex and the City where they probably have about 17 units every episode and nothing bad ever happens to them and they never even slur their speech to Home and Away where somebody has a gin and tonic and then the next episode they're in rehab. <laughs> and this is the spectrum of television. It's quite a blunt tool. Um, some of it is incredibly judgmental and unrealistic and some of it is incredibly cosmopolitan in the drink sense and the kind of social sense and there's no kind of I think if you're going to try and draw a message from that about the impact that has on behaviour you would 
be in for a long haul, to say the least. Um, advertising, I'm kind of, you know, obviously the, the whole purpose of advertising is to encourage people to do things. So to say booze advertising has no impact on anybody um, would be absurd. But at the same time, if you say children you know, respond very strongly to these images. I think there is an element in which they respond because it's contraband and because it's associated with adulthood. And children do respond to things that are kind of, you know, part of the rite of passage, and that is a kind of fresher's experience as well. Um, and whether or not you can, whether or not you can kind of manicure that out of the spectrum, I don't, I do not know. I mean, it's in, it would be an interesting comparison with smoking. Ten years ago, smoking was a kind of regular part of social intercourse on in adverts, and in, well, not in adverts, but in television. And now, the only people who smoke anywhere in the media are the people who are just about to shoot somebody. So, you know, that was not legislative. It was in advertising, but it it wasn't in culture it just kind of went along went in tandem with the view of smoking in wider society so you know there's there must be a lesson there but I'm not sure what it is I'm concentrating on newspapers because my particular area of interest um that the problem with them and it's a very obvious problem is that they're like lions and antelope they pick off weak groups to kind of talk about drinking. So the newspapers don't really talk about society as a whole drinking. They talk about kind of pregnant women or teenagers or this and, and problematise it very kind of in, in this very hysterical way, which which often does not reflect the statistics that well, um, which often, you know, it's, it's interesting, the 24-hour drinking culture, the Daily Mail got in terrible trouble for actually paying a young person to lie in the gutter. And then they just sprayed her with like some kind of nefarious liquid <laughs> to make it look like she'd just been sick when she hadn't because she was a nice middle class girl she rang the world at one um, <laughs> and so you know you had the picture of her on the front page of the mail and then she was on the world at one and pm the next day and that's quite that's, that i think is typical of the way certainly the tabloids treat stories about teenage drinking i agree that the teenage drinking is excessive but i don't think it's led by the media as much as it is exploited by the media and kind of revved up by the media. Um, I did, a, when I was pregnant, I did a lot of work on media messages with regards to pregnant women. In 2007, the, the deputy CMO brought out, a, brought out a missive saying pregnant women shouldn't drink at all, should it observe total abstinence. It was said in the notes, this is based on no evidence, this is just in the interests of clarity. Now. The newspapers reported this. They didn't. The only, in fact, the Guardian did, but nobody else said this is actually based on no evidence. Everybody reported it totally uncritically, as though this were a normal way to treat your citizens to just kind of, you know, issue blanket bans on things. Um, I think the message people get from that is the media, as a kind of news source, as an information disseminator, is not really to be trusted. You know, there's, it's, it's not that it's inconsistent because nobody expects total consistency from their media, but it's that it is slightly irrational. So you read it and you think, A, that's not about me, and B, that sounds like nonsense. And I think if there were just more rigor observed with the way things are described and realism, so likewise, when kind of when the media kind of regularly trots out the line that you know normal people drink one to two units a day, everybody knows that's not true. It's certainly not true of journalists, for God's sake. Um, so you know, there's a kind of it's almost as if we've entered into this collusion where we pretend to believe them, they pretend to believe us. We're all pretending to believe doctors, and nobody believes any of it. So. Um, 
if there were one message, I would say that was much, much more dangerous than some macho guys on the radio saying, oh, I had a skimful last night and I puked in my shoes. On which note... <laughs> <coughs> Thank you. Thank you, Zoe. Uh, Jackie Fulton. I checked into the same hotel last night as Oliver, um, but in my, I was offered uh, two bottles of mineral water, not the champagne, so I don't know what that says about me. <coughs> oh. um, when I started um, as a young journalist, uh, getting my first shift on the Daily Telegraph in London, I was very keen, very enthusiastic, wanted to prove myself. Um, so I was quite surprised when at one o'clock, um, the news editor, David Sapstead, walked up to my table and said, right, down tools, we're going to the pub. And I soon learnt in the weeks to come that this was a regular occurrence. Every lunchtime, all of the reporters and their boss uh, would go to the pub for a drink, and there wasn't much orange juice or mineral water being drunk. I then went to work for the Express, and that was the days when there was still a bar in the newsroom in the, uh, downstairs. You didn't need to leave the building to get a drink. Um, the fact is, drinking's an everyday, as he says, an everyday thing for journalists, as it is for many of their readers. Um, and I think, you know, journalists work funny hours, um, particularly sub-editors, uh, work late at night, they have their breaks in the middle of the night. Where do they go? They go for their break in the pub. Um, and as you all know, writers like to be wined and dined. So the fact is, these aren't the people who are most likely to preach about the terrible, terrible dangers of alcohol. Now, of course, you know, journalists do write stories about alcohol, but I'm saying generally um, they don't want to alienate their readers um, and, and preach to them. Um, one of my favourite stories um, of the last year about alcohol um, was a study by Norwich Union Healthcare which showed that uh, one in three people had turned up to work hungover and one in ten had actually turned up drunk. Um, that resonated greatly with the people who were writing the story, the sub-editors who were cutting it, um, and then the readers. And it went all over the world in every paper, and it was still being reported this January, six months after it was released. So, you know, that kind of story, as I say, people, it resonates with people. People like drinking. The title of this you know, talk today is, Does the Media Make Us Reach the Bottle? No, alcohol does, because people like it. And I think that's something we've got to remember. Um, and I think that, you know, obviously Zoe talks about, she says that, you know, papers treat um, alcohol hysterically and binge drinking. But I think papers like The Sun, often they'll um, have pictures of celebrities very drunk, falling out of taxis. But they take the mickey. They're not saying, hey, look at this celebrity, aren't they cool because they're drunk? They're actually saying, you know, they, they look at making a bit of a show of themselves, aren't they? And I think although journalists uh, like a drink, they also um, like to be in control. Uh, and they, they don't, don't like weakness, and so that's why I think they do um, pick on celebrities like that. So we're not always showing a, um, a, po a positive image of uh, alcohol. Um, so I think, you know, papers have been criticised for being too flippant, either, you know, not, not showing alcohol's harms or just concentrating on binge drinking. But I think that's a little bit simplistic. I was looking at The Sun last week and how it covered alcohol stories. There were, uh, on one given day, there were four stories about alcohol on all different takes. On the day before, there was no stories about alcohol at all. So it's, there's no, you know, blanket policy on, on, on stories about alcohol. It's, it's based on um, what's interesting that particular day, what's newsworthy. Um, one of the stories on that day when there were four was about Chris Evans. Uh, Chris Evans uh, had admitted that he'd had a pint of beer and two large glasses of wine every day for the last two and a half weeks when he went out with his pregnant wife. And so the son totted up the units and showed that uh, he, he'd had 46 units, you know, double the, the recommended level. Um, so that actually was getting across a public health message. 
Um, but in a way, because it was a story, it was there for a purpose. You know, we, we write things that we think our readers will find interesting and because they're stories, not because of, it's, it's a public health message. And this is really, really key. Um, in a recent think tank with health journalists, they were asked, um, do you think you've got a public health remit? And the overriding answer was, no, we're there to report the news and report it in, in the best way for our readership. Um, and, and I think that I had an angry debate with Melanie Johnson, the former health minister, recently, because she, she was really angry that we didn't do more public health. Well, we do, actually, in health sections, uh, in feature sections, opposed to the news sections. I used to do endless, you know, are you dependent on alcohol quizzes, you know, tick the box. And, of course, we all ticked too many, and uh, it was all quite frightening. But that's a nice and interesting way and interactive with the reader of getting across uh, alcohol messages. But we don't have a public health remit. And I think, to uh, conclude, I'd just like to say that if public health officials try and get into the heads of journalists more about why they write the stories and how they write them, then it might, that may help them get their messages across on alcohol. Well, Jackie, thank you. Uh, Hugh Burkett. Very good. Well, um, uh, at, at the beginning, uh, Oliver gave you a, a, a doctor's view, indeed a, a physician's view, uh, and uh, I had an interesting experience recently. Uh, I now run, run the Marketing Society, and we put on a lot, lots of conferences and events, uh, and the first one of this year was, in fact, about uh, alcoholic drinks marketing. Um, and we were looking for venues in London, and um, we went to the uh, Royal College of Physicians, who have rather nice halls to do these things in, uh, and we all sorted out. We were going to use their very nice uh, auditorium, uh, and then they discovered what the subject of the meeting was going to be about. It was going to be about the dreaded you know, promotion of, uh, of alcohol, and they quickly said, oh, no, we couldn't possibly do that. So we went down the road, and we went to the Royal College of Surgeons, where they very cheerfully <laughs> took us in and said they'd be absolutely delighted to take our money, and we had a, ve <laughs> and we had a very good meeting at the Royal College of Surgeons. So the, the moral is, obviously, that um, they don't mind you, you making yourself ill through alcohol. They'll cheerfully cut you up afterwards. Um, to, to get back to the, um, the, 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 the question here... Um, do, uh, does the media actually? I think do we do the media? I'm slightly worried about the English. Do, do the media m make you make you reach for the bottle? Um, my simple answer is no. Um, but on the other hand, I think you can say that uh, um, perhaps the media does, doesn't do a lot to um, to stop you reaching reaching for the bottle either. I think because I, I'm the one member of this panel who has some experience in the whole, whole area of advertising, I must, I must pick up a little bit on Oliver's uh, remarks about um, uh, about the role of advertising in all of this. Of course, advertising is, is, a, is a significant influence as part of the whole media, but I have to tell you from uh, 30 years of working in advertising, you, you do discover it's a much weaker force than everybody outside it actually, actually thinks. Um, and I do honestly believe um, that uh, the primary role of advertising is to uh, encourage people to buy one brand rather than another. Curiously, I don't mind admitting now I'm outside advertising, it's often to make you spend more money on a brand rather, uh, rather than another. So it's to encourage you to buy Gordon's rather than Sainsbury's or, or, or Bell's rather, rather than an own label, etc. Et, et so um, it does have a role, but, but uh, it is, of course, advertising is tremendously censored. Uh, and I have been part of that sort of process of helping to, to censor it more in, in recent years because, in fact, as I was leaving advertising, I bravely blew the whistle on um, uh, television advertising as, as it was in the early... Um uh, in the early 2000s uh, and pointed out that an awful lot of um, uh, drinks advertising at that time was um, uh, certainly against the spirit of the code if not actually against, against the letter uh, and the rules have subsequently been, been changed because for example there was a tremendous amount of promoting alcohol as a means of encouraging seduction uh, and uh, all references to sex and alcohol have now, have now been removed and uh, Bailey's which was sponsoring sex in the city is, is no longer allowed to and so on so you know that uh, uh, alcoholic drinks advertising is, is much more controlled in that way. This, of course, is one of the ironies of the research that Oliver actually talks about, because, of course, um, 
it has actually, on the whole, made um, alcoholic drinks advertising more entertaining because it now has to be more creative. It has to be more about the brand uh, and it can't talk about the functional values of alcohol and it, and it getting you drunk uh, and so on. But in the grand scheme of things, if you talk about does the media make you re reach for the bottle, uh, then clearly the, the, uh, the totality of the media is incredibly much more important than, than uh, advertising uh, because obviously the, our two major soaps are set in pubs. You know, we are in the Queen Vic or we're in the Rove's Return. So much of what we actually uh, see around us is, is to do uh, with alcohol uh, or, uh, in, in, in the media because it's reflecting society all the time. Uh, I conducted my own very intense focus group with my 12-year-old and my 15-year-old boys um, before coming to this um, uh, meeting. And I have to say, the subject of alcohol, I mean, when it was a bit of a leading question, but prompting, okay, in, in what you watch, do you see alcohol uh, you know, being used and, uh, uh, and, and drunk and consumed and so on? pretty quickly came up uh, and of course programs that I, I, I don't actually watch myself were immediate, immediately mentioned. Um, when I had television as a sort of 12 year old we all, we all huddled around uh, the black and white set uh, showing the horse of the year shirt at Wembley and thought it was wildly exciting. Um, well now uh, you know, my, my, these two boys are actually in their own separate rooms watching separate programs and my 15 year old tells me that he watches Skins on E4, uh, he says it's terrific and he says you're not going to get it banned are you dad? Um, anyway. Um, so, anyway, um, I could go on a, a, a long time about all of this, but I, I think in order, to, in order to keep the discussion short, um, of course the, the, the media uh, reflects back uh, how, what, what is happening in, in all our drinking. Drinking is deeply at the heart of, heart of all our, uh, um, our social activity. Just try giving up uh, drinking in January, as I have a few times, to feel the kind of pressure on you from everybody who has, hasn't given up drinking uh, to, 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 put, to push you back, back into it. Uh, and, the, and the media reflects all of this. What I do think is the case is that if collectively we want the media to have a stronger influence on us to drink more sensibly, then of course we can do that. But the media must be free to choose whether they encourage um, better drinking patterns, just as I believe passionately that we should be all free to choose uh, whether, whether, whether we actually, actually drink or not. But that leads on to the very interesting question which I know Ed is going to cover because I saw Ed Mitchell's brilliant program uh, uh, earlier this week which I found very moving. The great problem with alcohol is, is when is enough enough? Uh, and the trouble is that what happens with alcohol is it, it becomes, uh, when should one say no in the course of an evening? And it becomes very difficult for some people to say no. So what is actually uh, a great pleasure and even possibly physically beneficial at low level becomes a terrible problem uh, at some, some greater level. And that's why I think it's so difficult for us all to, all to intervene. But if I may okay, hand over to Thank you. Thank you. We'll be um, crossing to the floor in just a couple of moments after our final speaker. And that's Ed Mitchell. Ed. I'm Ed and I'm an alcoholic. Um, the reason I say that is because in some senses this is a bit like being at an AA meeting. Um, in some senses. Uh, because I share so much with what other speakers have, have said and identify with so much of what other speakers have, have said. Particularly this idea of whether um, the media simply uh, reflect what is in society or whether they shape. And the answer is, of course, a bit of both. And... Um, <clears throat> That seems to be a running theme of what has been said, is the complexity and the ambivalence of people's attitudes towards alcohol, because as an individual, even now I have a very ambivalent attitude towards alcohol. So uh, do the media, does the media shape, uh, uh, make you reach for the bottle? Well, sometimes, of course, they can simply make you reach, and uh, as an alcoholic, I know a lot about that. But um, uh, does being part of the media make you reach for the bottle? And that's where I'd like to get on to my individual story, because I think being part of the media most definitely does. 
Um, and uh, one of the speakers said that um, does it make you reach for the bottle? Well, it, it can make uh, you trigger your feelings for it because yes, you actually, or certainly in my case, I actually liked the stuff from the very beginning. Um, why did I like it? Well, actually, purely chemically, I liked it. it um, for me, it was liquid optimism from the age of uh, 16. Um, I'm not sure that I was influenced by the media in that sense to begin drinking. Um, it just seemed to be actually part of society as a whole. And I had it fixed in my mind, as I say, apart from loving the stuff, I had it fixed in my mind that all the good guys drank. Certainly at school, certainly at university. That was always my close association between alcohol and good people, successful people, happy people, celebrations. <laughs> and that was a fixed link that throughout my entire 40-year career of drinking was always there. And certainly going into Fleet Street in 1974, into Reuters, um, it, I, it was most definitely fixed in my mind that uh, the best journalists drank, some of the best stories were written when they rolled back from, uh, from lunch. Uh, in fact, you were looked upon as slightly odd if you didn't. And certainly the best contacts I ever made were uh, overdrink in restaurants, in hotels, in the bar, late night drinking, who could hold their liquor best on the buffet car down to, to Brighton. So um, that was always, always the case in my mind. And it always struck me as very odd that we talked, about, uh, we talked about champagne. Why champagne is always associated with celebration? Again, it's firmly fixed in society's mind that champagne is. It's always struck me as so odd, really, that at the end of a Formula One race, I don't know, 70 laps, and um, they give the, the drivers, who must be incredibly exhausted and genuinely thirsty for water, and they give them a giant bottle of champagne. I've never really quite understood that. It's because it is so firmly fixed in people's minds that champagne and celebration go together. Uh, also, the subject of soap opera was, was brought up. I mean, it, it is firmly fixed in EastEnders, in the Queen Vic, that... Whatever emotional problem Ronnie or Roxy or um, Phil or Shirley have, they immediately reach for vodka and drink it like water. Um, in any James Bond film, of course, it's um, incredibly uh, glamorized as well. So there is continuously, throughout a person's life, whatever job they're in, that association between drink, sex, glamour, and being one of the good guys. For me, personally, I'll just address the question, uh, finally, of can the media save you from the bottle? Well, in, in my case, most definitely, I would still be on that park bench on the seafront uh, in a terrible state if it hadn't been for the media. I don't think, uh, and I, I, I believe this to be true, and I'm certainly not going to bite the hand that saved me, but I don't think they did it out of altruism. Um, it was because they saw it as a damn good story in the... Um, and it happened uh, by chance and coincidentally. Eh? Um, in the run-up to Christmas, um, it just sort of fitted the bill of no room at the inn, uh, uh, riches to rags, um, debt problems, drink problem, uh, sleeping rough. It just fitted the bill. And I'm glad it did, by the way. <laughs> I shall forever be grateful that that happened. Uh, and as, when the media approached the story and really took hold of it, I think they began to shape it. And I think that's another aspect of the media, is the way that 
It has to be squeezed into a box, if you like, a, a stereotypical preconceived idea of what uh, a vagrant, a tramp, a dosser, uh, and someone drunk on a park bench should be. Um, given that there's likely to be a whole wave of people finding themselves sleeping rough, uh, a lot of them aren't going to fit that stereotypical image. They will be white-collar tramps that uh, aren't leather-skinned and shambling and shouting at the pigeons and uh, drinking in public. Certainly in the making of the, the uh, documentary, which again I'm very glad uh, happened uh, because it brought out in the open a lot of issues, there was the necessity to sort of fit it in to that stereotypical image of, of drinking in public, for example. And I think there was an, an element in that of actually um, maybe possibly even encouraging more drinking than there would have been necessarily the case to, to make it look and fit the image. Because it, I think it was almost inconceivable that someone with my background could actually find themselves in that position but I, I, I do believe there will be a lot more, and I think a lot more people will realize just how easy it is under the influence of uh, drink and uh, alcoholism and debt to find themselves on a park bench. But I shall forever be grateful to the media for getting me out of it, because without that, I'd still be there now. Thank Ed, thank you. Um, just before we cross over to take some questions to our panel, um, back to the, the initial question, a quick yes or no from, uh, from everybody, if you would. Does the media make you reach for the bottle? <laughs> Professor Oliver James, yes or no? No. Zoe Williams? No. Jackie Fonson? No. Hugh Burkett? No. Ed Mitchell? By itself, no. Okay. Uh, we're going to take some questions. We have um, some microphones as well, so if you can wait for the microphone to come to you. Uh, in sort of Jerry Springer style as well. We also have Sarah down here acting as a bouncer, just in case Yasmin Alabriar-Brown kicks off or something at the back there. Um, so any questions to start off with? Um, gentleman down here at the front, if you just wait for the microphone, sir. My name's Ian Hutchison. I'm a facial surgeon. I'm a professor at Barts and London and University College Hospital. And there are several things you haven't touched on. So it's not really a question, but I wanted to give some information. Are you prepared to let me give some information? Is that okay? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so as a facial surgeon, uh, David Poley knows me because of the Portman Group. Uh, in 1997, um, we tried to work out how many facial injuries occurred in the UK. We managed to study 6,100 facial injuries uh, across the UK in one week. Uh, the most serious facial injuries occurred to the 15 to 25-year-old age group um, in association with alcohol on Friday and Saturday nights between 11 p.m. and 2 a.m. We've repeated that study now in 2008. We have 8,700 injuries to analyze. Um, we've got the preliminary results from that. Unfortunately, the age group is expanding of the serious facial injuries from 15 to 25 up to 45 now. Um, and that's our preliminary results that we'll be publishing in great depth over the course of the next three months. As a result of finding out about 15 to 25-year-olds, we launched um, a, a video called In Your Face, done by Roger Grafe in 1998. And we also started uh, a campaign in schools which has turned into a prospective randomized study. And so two and a half years ago, we uh, went with the help of the Department of Health, and I'll talk about Diageo in a moment. Who's from Diageo? Anybody here from Diageo? Right, whereabouts? Just there. Okay. Um, uh, 
we, we uh, tried to get funding from Diageo to run this prospective randomized study to do the data collection on 10,000 school kids in England. Unfortunately, Diageo didn't have enough money to fund it. Um, we met with them, and that was at a time when they just announced uh, a billion pounds worth of profits, I think, two and a half years ago, something like that. Um, and we were asking for 100,000 pounds to run that. But the Department of Health fortunately helped us um, the Facial Surgery Research Foundation Saving Faces to conduct this study, and we've conducted it on nearly 10,000 English school children aged 13 and 14. 44% of those had binge drunk 13 and 14 year olds in the previous three months. Um, of those that had binge drunk, 10% uh, had been to hospital with an alcohol related problem, 13 and 14 year olds in the previous uh, three months. Um, 6% had had sex that they later regretted and sex without contraception. 30% um, of the boys had gone into fights because of alcohol. Well, that's not surprising. 13 and 14 year old boys get into fights. But what shocked me was 11% of the girls had got into fights um, because of getting drunk. Now, everybody's been very polite here and talked about drunk. When we asked the questions, when we did this baseline study, and we've got the results now of the two and a half year follow-up, half of the kids had a talk from a facial surgeon showing pictures of facial injuries. Why facial injuries? Alcohol is boring. Alcohol, uh, sorry, liver disease is boring because it affects people later on, you can't see it. A facial injury, a scar is for life. Um, and that's the story. And when we go in and talk to the school kids, we're not judgmental. We don't say, don't drink. Um, we know it's illegal, but don't drink. Um, we, we don't say that. What we say is, we're here to tell you about the dangers you run, and here are some stories. And so we show graphic pictures of kids with their noses bitten off, um, scars on faces, scalps peeled down to show smashed in heads. Um, and we've got the results of the follow-up, two and a half year follow-up, in the kids who had the talk, almost 5,000, compared with the kids that didn't. Um, interestingly, the kids that had the talk, uh, fewer of them are getting drunk, they're drinking less alcohol, and they know the harms that they can come to as a result. But to come back to the original baseline study and all these kids getting drunk, why do they get drunk? Because that's why we talked about it. It's peer group, it's uh, advertising, it's uh, what they regard as the norm. They don't like vomiting. Sorry. Yeah, in the, in the baseline survey, yes. Okay. In the follow-up survey, we're asking slightly different questions. Um, so in the baseline survey, we ask them, and of course, You've been very polite here, as I said a few moments ago. You talk about drunkenness. No, they don't talk about drunkenness. They talk about rat-assed, plastered. I bet you everybody in this room can think of 10 words to describe being drunk. Hammered, you know, all, all pissed. You know, it goes on. Um, and that's what they want to talk about. The following day, in the playground, in the lessons, I was rat-assed last night. I was plastered last night. I had a bottle of vodka with my mates in the, in the park. Um, you know, and it's about bravado, and it's about uh, um, something that they perceive as normal in their peer group now. It has become normal to be rat-assed and plastered. And what we have to do is achieve a culture change. Now, I appreciate that I haven't touched on where the media has an involvement. I definitely feel that advertising has an involvement. We've got scientific studies, as Oliver's shown, which show that it does have a, uh, an effect on drinking. Um, and we need more campaigns with shock tactics. Well, let's, let's just, uh, Hugh, can we put that yeah. to you? Because this is sort of your area. Okay, well, well let, me, let me first of all respond to your, your campaign in schools, which I think is an absolutely excellent uh, way to go, because, okay, again, my own extremely small sample, talking to my young kids about it, 
they get tremendous, uh, a, a lot of education these days in schools about uh, drugs, about uh, smoking. Um, indeed, I was told they had a whole day also on how to uh, help somebody recover if they'd passed out from, amongst other things, alcohol. But actually, when, when, when probed a bit more about alcohol specifically, and well, what were the, the dangers of it, now I felt their, their, their understanding was extremely fuzzy. So I, I, I personally absolutely welcome what, what you're doing in schools, and I think the, the thought of a scar is for life and concentrating on facial industries, as you say, is absolutely the way to go, because uh, the trouble with young people, of course, is they're, they're immortal. And if, if you're going to shorten the last 20, 30 years, you're like, who the hell cares? That's so far away. You just, just about. So, so, so that's terrific. You did, however, you several times mentioned advertising as, 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 as being an issue. I, I'd just like to put that in the context of you know, the, the, the media more generally. Actually, personally, as a marketing man, I think price is a much, price is a much more um, potent uh, force within the, within the whole uh, alcoholic drinks market, as also, of course, is, 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 is availability. Um, so I, just, I would just sort of you know, detune, if you like, um, within, that, within, that, within your whole uh, mix of things, the role of advertising specifically. Because as I say, actually, so much of that has actually already been, been censored, uh, and there is a much bigger issue of, of well, how do you get the media generally more on the side? Because as you said, it's a cultural problem. It's a cultural shift, and advertising in itself, you know, isn't, isn't going to affect that that greatly. Okay. Uh, any other questions? Hello, I'm Charlie Burgess from EI. I'm also a recovering journalist. Um, <laughs> I'm surprised that the um, panel all said that they didn't think that the media had had uh, uh, had made people reach for the bottle. Ed, you mentioned the drinking of champagne after a, after the Grand Prix. Mum Champagne pay, obviously. I mean, the product placement is pretty huge throughout the media, and that must have an effect, otherwise they wouldn't do it. Advertising is quite clearly works, otherwise we've all been duped for years. The, the idea that none of this has any effect just can't be, can't be right, because otherwise why are people doing it all? For instance, the paparazzi outside nightclubs. The nightclubs tell the paparazzi to be there because they've got someone in who they know is going to get pissed, is going to fall out of it. And they're there, it's all part of a of a machine. And I'm surprised people aren't uh, acknowledging it, that. You're, you're, it was interesting that everybody said, no, it doesn't. I mean, Ed, you know, despite your story and everything, the media do simply reflect what goes on in society. They feed off each other. So, yes, I absolutely take your, your point there. And I, I don't think the media themselves, uh, plural, n know how to react either. I mean, even the idea of rehab as being glamorous. <laughs> Fancy... Having displayed some think, oh, I don't, the weakness to, towards alcohol and addiction, for that to be glamorous, I never quite understood. And I can tell you firsthand that 28 days in uh, rehab at the Priory in Roehampton isn't glamorous. If you listen to Radio 1 in the morning, they're always talking about what they've been doing the previous night, and basically it's all them all getting out and getting plastered. Media, people respond to the media in the sense in which it kind of seems true to them, in the sense in which it's universal and it chimes with their experience. And I think about this a lot in children's television because um, you really notice in television for young children, there's an amazingly large proportion of dis disabled children because they obviously want to kind of normalise it and say this is what society is. But it actually isn't what society is because the proportion is something like 60-40 disabled to undisabled. Um, and the children, as soon as they can talk and go to school, say, that person's in a wheelchair. I don't know anybody in a wheelchair. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? So you can, you could, if you wanted to, if you were in a kind of more, a less democratic state, say, okay, let's do an experiment in which the media does not reflect the way people respond to alcohol, in which, the, in which people don't celebrate with champagne, they celebrate with schlur, in which people don't talk about getting rat asked, they talk about staying in and knitting. And maybe, maybe some impressionable people would 
kind of alter their relationship with alcohol. But I think you'd find people just falling out of love with that as a as an experiential kind of curve. They just would have nothing. They would think this doesn't really speak to me. This isn't my life. Um, and you know, it's in, in a in a commercial world. The media is trying to talk to people. The media reinforces views people already have. Um, yeah, the countless stories I've written, you know, a glass of red wine is good for you. It doesn't mean that people who don't drink red wine are kind of suddenly going to go out and drink it. But the, and the, and the, it gives a, a reason for the people who already like it to say, hey, I can, it's, it's OK, I can drink it. And we can debate that side of things. The percentage of people that would go out <laughs> and drink it because they'd seen uh, the reference to Phil in EastEnders or somebody like that, because they've seen that as a, a reaction to a certain situation. Is there, a, in your own mind, a percentage of people, perhaps that have taken to the bottle purely because they've seen it in the media, not part of any other equation. I don't think so. Of that. No, I don't. Okay. Uh, question over there. Hi, my name's Tammy Boyce, and I'm a research fellow at the King's Fund in public health, but I also used to work at the School of Journalism at Cardiff University uh, looking at social issues. So I'm speaking from both experiences. And um, I've critiqued journalism, journalistic balance in the, uh, in the past, so I'm kind of glad that uh, you haven't chosen to balance the panel, but I think a little bit of balance would have been good. Um, yeah, well, yeah, I suppose the audience, I feel as if it's us against you. Um, but uh, I also want to say I'm Canadian and I do have a sense of humour, but I also... <laughs> well, at least you've laughed at, over that. But uh, yeah, it is, some people do think it's a tautology. But um, I, I think part of the conversation today is endemic of, of our attitudes towards alcohol, which is it's all a little bit jokey. And journalists, oh, we all have a little bit of fun. And... I think one of the most frustrating things for me as a, as a previous life as a media academic and now as a public health uh, research fellow uh, is journalists saying, well, just because I write something doesn't mean people automatically have a drink or do this. And the whole point about the media is that they're part of a culture and they create a culture. And we're not saying, because I, you've written this, I've done this. But what it is, is you've created a culture. And if you can't say that the media aren't helping to create culture, then I think you're not living in the right world. Is that just a final point? How big is that influence? Can you gauge it, one to ten? You can gauge it. And there is research that has been done. And we've what, done it. What would you say it, it was? In the, interestingly, I can't, I mean, that's the thing. You are asking, as a journalist, for a specific, sure. you almost want to get out of the argument that don't blame me because mm -hmm. it's part of a culture. But it's part of a wide, wider culture and do we ever see pictures of people or images of people drinking responsibly or where it isn't an issue and the problem is the images that we remember are all of as you've all recounted of sex in the city and there isn't a problem and we all kind of think that's a big joke but the reality is you're the ones who have to create those images and it's not necessarily news journalists who are the problem the problem is people writing fictional television and they should be sitting here because they're just as important and if not more important particularly for young people you know a 15 year old isn't reading the daily mail going whoa that looks like fun i'm going to go have a drink it is those fictional programs and okay. you know movies like role model that sure. that's part of the problem okay yasmin alibi brown just at the back the way I'm, I'm following up from that, I think the coyness of the practitioners in the media is, is extraordinary. Humility, you never see it, but you see it when they're asked to account for their contribution in the making of the culture. But one thing, why is it such a, a big problem in Britain? I know alcohol levels are going up everywhere, but really, Canadians, Americans, every other European nation, bar the Scandinavians, when they come here, they are genuinely shocked by the, by the kind of way alcohol is seen and consumed and not noticed even. And I just don't understand. Do you mean Europe, Yasmin, or do you just mean Britain? No, I'm UK? saying, why is it? No, no, I think Britain has a particular problem. 
And the mistake that was made by Mr. Blair sitting in a square was that we aren't similar to so many, most other European nations, except the Scandinavians have the same kind of death wish. I don't know where that comes from. Okay. Well, Oliver, do you want to respond to that? Just briefly respond. You're right about the Scandinavians. If you've ever been in Gothenburg on a Saturday night, you'll think that you know, even the big market in Newcastle is tame. And actually, there's recent uh, uh, evidence to show that, unfortunately, although per capita alcohol consumption is going down in some of the Mediterranean countries very steeply, actually, young people being uh, binge drinking and, uh, and uh, exhibiting loutish behaviour, all those familiar things, is going up really very steeply in those countries, as is uh, hospital attendances and, um, and um, le- uh, legal issues in 16- and 17-year-olds in, for example, um, Italy. So I think we're not quite as alone as you think we are now. But don't you think Yasmin has a point insofar as um, the drinking among regular people over 30s, professionals, is I think people, British people drink much more at that level than Americans, certainly. And they do. Uh, Americans are a, a race apart. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure some of us can remember when Americans used to get um, absolutely hammered before dinner on three massive dry <laughs> martinis and then drink milk with their food, which was very uncivilised. But as a matter of fact, if you go to... Uh, uh, France or Italy, you'll see that, that or Greece, you'll see that, um, quotes, people like us uh, drink just as much as people like us, quotes, in those countries. Okay. Uh, that's it. We're out of time, I'm afraid. Just time to thank our, uh, our panel, Professor Oliver James, Zoe Williams, Jackie Thornton, Hugh Burkett, and, of course, Ed Mitchell. And thank you to everybody for coming here uh, this morning. Don't forget to keep checking the website for the, uh, the, next, the next event, Julia. That would be right, yeah. And uh, thank you, and have a great day. Thank you. Thank you.